hours of surgery and multiple trips to the operating room. Could you talk about some more about the uh, uh, the conditions under which you performed surgery while you were there? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in war zones. I've operated in small hospitals in Africa. I was n I thought I was going to be prepared, but I was not prepared for what I saw here in terms of not only the equipment and materials that I had access to, but the patients that I was taking care of. We lacked as surgeons in the hospital then basic equipment and basic materials such as sterile drapes basic surgical equipment. There are a lot of procedures that we couldn't perform because we didn't have access to that equipment. And as a result, patients suffered because we couldn't provide them with procedures or services that we could have provided for them here in America. Dr. Irfan Galeria, we have to end the conversation here, but we're going to continue online at democracynow.org. People can hear and watch our web exclusive. Um, Dr. Galeria is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. Uh, he wrote an L.A. Times op-ed headlined, I'm an American doctor who went to Gaza. What I saw wasn't war. It was annihilation. That does it for our show. Uh, happy belated birthday to Neil Shabata. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Faust, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Sharifa Gokudus, Messiah Rhodes, Nareen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Hannah Alias. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph. This is KBOO Portland, listener-powered, non-corporate community radio. Black Care Matters, the podcast where we honor the unique experiences of Black nurses working in the Pacific Northwest. And recognizing that Black lives matter, it's crucial that the care for these nurses also matters. My eyes go to this huge swastika tattooed on this white man's back. These nurses aren't just bearing the burden of white supremacy. This series is the testament that they are rising up and embodying the change they seek. It's been difficult to sit in spaces where the people on the other side of the table aren't quite ready to hear what you have to say. Right. But you know you have to say it. If Black care does matter, then the care for these nurses undeniably matters. Join us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to KBU Community Radio during the special programming campaign, All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 3. This February and March, you will hear different marathons and series, all brought to you by our talented programmers, including marathons like our very own Bluegrass Marathon. If you'd like to help KBU reach our $22,000 goal by March 16th, Go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to the number 44321 right now. Into the streets, into the streets, into the streets, into the streets. 
check out Ear to the Streets of Portland with hosts Sequoia and Kayla every first and third Thursday of the month starting at 7 o'clock p.m. Listen in as we interview community organizers, speak on issues focused on Black Portland, and share community events happening in the area and elsewhere. Listen on the radio at 90.7 FM, online at www.kboo.fm, or from your mobile phone at m.kboo.fm. Follow KBU on Instagram at KBU Radio. Ear to the streets. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News... The Multnomah County Chair has a new action plan for addressing slow ambulance response times. Metro Council President Lynn Peterson drops out of the race for Oregon House District 5. And rural Oregonians face new cuts to their postal service. Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. I'm Eric Leuschner. Ambulance response times in Multnomah County are not great. Analysis from November of last year showed they were only reaching patients within the standard eight minutes about 60% of the time. Today, Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega Pedersen announced a four-part plan to address this, including reevaluating the county's contract with American Medical Response, the AMR you see on the sides of ambulances. The county has fined AMR at least $1.6 million in penalties for slow response times. AMR says they don't have enough paramedics to staff the ambulances in the way the county requires. Vega Pedersen's new plan includes moving into a formal mediation with AMR on fines and lack of staffing. If AMR doesn't come up with a clear plan of action to fix things, the county will collect its fines. Vega Pedersen plans to ask the county board to reopen the ambulance services plan two years ahead of schedule. That's a procedural step that's required by the state to outline how emergency medical services work in the county. Vega Pedersen wants to open that up early to explore more sweeping changes. Her plan also includes asking Portland and Gresham what it would take for their fire departments to absorb some staffing responsibilities that AMR has proposed meaning firefighters could respond to more medical 911 calls. AMR has also pushed the idea that each ambulance could have just one paramedic and an EMT on board instead of two paramedics. Two paramedics is in line with the national standard, but Multnomah County is the only county in Oregon that requires that. Vega Pedersen said, quote, I'm committed to making sure we solve this crisis in a way that is logical, transparent, and protects the public's health and interest, end quote. Truckers for Trump threatened to strike over his massive civil fine for business fraud in New York City. Biden wants Norfolk Southern held accountable one year after an Ohio derailment and dangerous chemical spill and faith leaders call for peace in the Israel-Hamas war. With more on the story, it's Edwin J. Vieira with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. The American worker has the power. The American trucker has the power to bring 
leftist cities to their knees by just refusing to deliver. Jack Lombardi is one of many truckers for Trump calling for a strike to protest the former president's civil fine for business fraud close to half a billion dollars after interest. The group wants to stop deliveries by some of the 100,000 commercial vehicles serving New York City daily, which Donald Trump is endorsing wholeheartedly. But the city that never sleeps isn't done with him yet. His hush money case involving porn star Stormy Daniels begins there in late March, the first of four criminal trials the former president is facing. Meanwhile, news organizations and others are calling for Trump's federal election interference trial to be televised. A petition started late last year by Connecticut activist Jonathan Perlow now has 60,000 signatures. Perlow says transparency could show Trump's role in the January 6th attacks. If we allow a camera in the courtroom, the voters, Americans, can kind of see firsthand, you know, what evidence is presented and how the witnesses testify. A year ago, a freight train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, spilling toxic chemicals. President Joe Biden says he signed an executive order to hold Norfolk Southern accountable for the derailment and its long-term impacts. While speaking to residents of East Palestine, he said the disaster should have been prevented. We were pushing the railroads to take border precautions, to deal with breaking, to deal with a whole range of things that were not dealt with. Norfolk Southern failed its responsibility. Since the Israel-Hamas war began last October, U.S. faith leaders have been calling for an end to the violence. Last week, many joined activists and artists on a pilgrimage from Independence Hall in Philadelphia to the White House, urging President Biden to force Israel to negotiate. Reverend Stephen A. Green is with Faith for Black Lives. This is a pilgrimage. This is a sacred journey. This is not about Israeli versus Palestinians. This is about our values that make us human. Last week, several Catholic organizations held related protests on Ash Wednesday. They say they'll hold different actions each week during the 40 days of Lent, culminating on Easter, calling on Biden to live up to his Catholic faith. But Judy Kood with Pax Christi USA describes the demonstrations as interfaith. Honestly, the basis of the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, it is that covenant we have with our Creator who has promised to love us and care for us. And we are all connected. We're truly one family. After rejecting a U.N. Security Council ceasefire resolution, the New York Times reports the U.S. is preparing an alternate version that would take effect as soon as practicable. The Times also reports Israeli attacks have left the two hospitals in southern Gaza barely functional as medical facilities. Israel accuses Hamas of hiding under hospitals and saying it plans to go ahead with attacks in southern Gaza in spite of the dire humanitarian situation for the hundreds of thousands of refugees trapped there by fighting in the north. I'm Edwin J. Vieira for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Metro Council President Lynn Peterson ends her campaign for the Democratic nomination for Oregon's 5th Congressional District. That's a seat that's currently held by Republican Lori Chavez de Reamer. That leaves just two Democratic candidates vying for the nomination, State Rep. Janelle Bynum and 2022 nominee Jamie McLeod Skinner. Peterson won her re-election for Metro Council President in 2022. Prior to that, she was a Lake Oswego city councilor and a Clackamas County chair. She had hoped to capitalize on her support and notoriety in Clackamas County, which has the most voters in the 5th District. Peterson has endorsed Bynum for the nomination. Representative Bynum has defeated the current Congresswoman, Chavez Dereamer, in two legislative races. McLeod Skinner lost to Chavez Dereamer in the general election in 2022, but she did unseat the incumbent Democrat Kurt Schrader, who had held the seat for seven terms. As for the general race against Chavez Dereamer, whoever gets the nomination will have a 5% Democratic voter registration advantage. 
National election watchers think Oregon District 5 could be one of the key contests for determining control of the U.S. House come this November. For American Heart Month, new research confirms the connection between a person's sleeping patterns and heart health. According to the report, inconsistent sleep can lead to an increase in the risk of heart failure. Terry D. has more in Chicago. This is American Heart Month, and new findings published by the American Heart Association say irregular sleeping patterns over years, weeks, or even days can affect a person's heart health. The body's reactions to physical, mental, and behavioral changes within a 24-hour cycle influence its internal clock or circadian rhythm. Indiana cardiologist Dr. Sandeep Dubey says in the study, researchers found a stable circadian rhythm can mean a 40 to 60 percent lower risk of heart disease. If participants had irregular circadian heart rhythm, they had inefficiency, they actually increase the risk of heart disease by more than three-fourths. The Illinois Department of Health reports that in 2021, nearly 27,000 residents died from heart disease. Dubay adds that stress and a lack of quality sleep can also increase the risk for other chronic illnesses such as diabetes, arthritis, and cancer. According to the report, heart failure affects almost 6 million Americans aged 20 and older. That number is projected to increase to 8 million by 2030. Other influences on the circadian rhythm are the amounts of exposure to daylight and darkness and the physical activity people do, as well as the types and quantities of food they eat. Dubay advises focusing on a healthy diet and doing 30 to 40 minutes of daily moderate exercise, such as walking four to five days a week. We as cardiologists, we have been aware that for a long time, people who don't eat right, don't do physical activity right, you know, whose cycle is disturbed, they do have more heart disease. He says creating regular healthy routines can lead to a healthier life. The National Sleep Foundation advises putting devices away an hour before bedtime and establishing a consistent routine for winding down at day's end as keys to getting a good night's rest. This is Terry D. for Illinois News Service. Rural post offices in Oregon and around the country are facing a big change relatively soon. Post offices that are over 50 miles away from processing plants Portland, Eugene, and Medford that have a population of less than 6,000 people will get only one mail truck per day in the morning. The current system sends two trucks per day, one in the morning to deliver the town's mail and another in the evening to pick up the outgoing mail. If folks get their mail in before 5 o'clock, it goes out with the evening truck. The post office is making cutbacks, called local transportation optimization. These cutbacks mean rural Oregonians will have their mail delivery delayed by a day. That delay isn't just for getting cards from friends. Residents depend on their post office for services for getting prescriptions, casting their ballots, or avoiding late fees on utility bills. Postal workers and rural organizers are pushing back, calling on Oregon legislators to take action to protect against the service cuts from the post office. Some Oregon towns will feel the impact as early as this month. Sustainable farm advocates have been trying for years to get more producers to adopt climate-friendly practices. Policy experts now have new data that helps them get a better sense of how the movement is faring. Mike Moen has the details. Those who research farming trends are poring over new federal data that only comes around every five years. 
The latest information helps some organizations check the pulse of conservation efforts. This month, the USDA released the new Census of Agriculture. Initial reaction focused on the loss of farms around the country and consolidation within the industry. Mike Lavender with the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition says there's also numbers detailing how much farmland is being used for climate-friendly practices. He notes there were some bright spots, but also room for opportunity. Some of the data that we're seeing within the census reinforces for us that in so many ways it is about access to programs within USDA or information, making sure that we can use all of those avenues to drive adoption in the way that we know there is demand for. Conservation data examples include an increase in the use of no-till practices, while the number of farmers using rotational grazing is down. The agricultural industry faces pressure to improve soil health and reduce its carbon footprint under the threat of climate change. Between 2017 and 2022, Wisconsin farmers boosted key conservation work, including the planting of cover crops. And while the data is new, Lavender cautions it doesn't capture how farmers are responding to new incentives from the federal government. This is certainly pre-Inflation Reduction Act investment data. So while this is, of course, accurate and really important to wrap our heads around, there's even newer data that we're getting from Inflation Reduction Act funding demand that it's important to take into account. The IRA provided nearly $20 billion to bolster funding for popular conservation programs. The USDA reported that applications exceeded the extra funding that was set aside. Ag researchers have noted while there's demand for these incentives, farmers have often faced barriers to being approved, with only one in four applicants being successful. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for a special rebroadcast of our interview with Shannon Jones Isidore from Oregon Change Clinic, an addiction treatment and temporary housing provider supported by funds from Measure 110. At 6 o'clock, it's Transpositive PDX. Then at 7, it's KBU's Black History and Futures Month serial series. Tonight is the first episode of the Black Care Matters podcast. Tonight's weather will be cloudy with some rain showers and a low of 41 degrees. Tomorrow's weather will be rainy with a high of 53. Today in history, in 1962, while aboard Friendship 7, John Glenn becomes the first American to orbit Earth, making three orbits in four hours, 55 minutes. The quote of the day is from American writer and abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who died this day in 1895. He said, quote, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Tribes in Arizona are praising the federal government for denying hydroelectric projects in the northeast part of the state. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. 
Federal officials recently denied hydroelectric projects in Black Mesa in northeast Arizona. Tribal officials are praising the federal government's decision. Clark Adamitis has more. Tribal officials and environmental justice groups have been opposing three hydroelectric pumps in the Black Mesa region for over a year, saying the project would deplete already small groundwater reserves. The communities on the high plateau rely on aquifers that are two to three thousand feet below the ground for drinking water. Today, we don't even see the springs and the seeps anymore on Black Mesa. Nicole Horseherder, executive director of the Navajo nonprofit Tuanajaane, says that for 50 years, coal mining projects have used billions of gallons of groundwater in Black Mesa. In a place that gets less than eight inches of rainfall a year, we're almost 100% dependent on these groundwater sources. When industry comes in and taps into the same groundwater sources, there's just no way that you're not going to make an impact. On municipal and residential water uses, Horse Herder praises the federal agencies for considering the tribal community's position. Federal commissioners also announced a new policy of not allowing projects on tribal lands that don't have tribal support. I'm Clark Adamitis. An Alaska legislator apologized on the House floor last week for comments she made in a tribal affairs committee meeting. Committee members heard testimony from organizations serving Alaska Native people on the disparities in assault rates and violence against Indigenous women, which are several times higher than the general population. At the end of the meeting, Republican Representative Sarah Vance of Homer said she felt the presentation excluded the experiences of white women who are victims of sexual violence. It's the same thing, but. What I continue to hear in this committee over and over again is if you're the only one, and I know that's not your heart, but I ask that when you come and present, that you remember that you have white sisters who are going through the same thing, and they don't feel they have justice either. Representative Ashley Carrick from Fairbanks responded to Vance's comments. While the suffering is the same for victims, the causes of that violence are not the same, and the response to that violence is not the same. And the justice for the victims is not the same. And until it's the same, we have got a lot of work to do. Representative Maxine Dibert, who's Quaycon Athabaskan from Fairbanks, said, "Quote: As the only Alaska Native woman in the legislature, knowing my Native sisters are disproportionately affected by these high rates of violence within Alaska and other states, cuts me to my core." End quote. Vance apologized on the House floor that same day. But to every victim. In every Alaska Native voice, you have been heard, and you will can be continue to be heard in this body. And I ask you to forgive me for not listening with understanding first. Vance sponsored four bills related to human and sex trafficking this legislative session. The Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma is seeking changes to the Major Crimes Act for Cherokee citizens of Freedman descent. The federal law governs criminal jurisdiction of tribal citizens on reservations and requires Indian blood, which the tribe says discriminates against Cherokee citizens of Freedman descent. Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. says they'll seek change through Congress or the high courts. The Cherokee Nation has more than 15,000 enrolled citizens of Freedman descent, which are full Cherokee citizens. Hoskin made the announcement this week during an event in Tulsa. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. It's important to stay out of floodwaters. They can be dangerous and even deadly, and climate change is making flooding more frequent and severe. Dr. Anthony Lysowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. 
I'm Dr. Anthony Lizerwitz, and this is Climate Connections. As spring arrives, so does a higher risk of floods from heavy rain. And every year, dozens of U.S. residents die in flood disasters. To stay safe during a flood, the most important thing to do is keep far away from the water. Stay tuned for warnings and evacuation alerts. And if an evacuation order is given, try to disconnect your utilities and appliances before leaving for higher ground. If you're driving and encounter a flooded road, do not try to drive through it. Most flood deaths in the U.S. occur in cars. If you're at home and water starts pouring into a lower level, move upstairs right away, especially if the water is high enough to reach the electrical outlets. But only go onto the roof if there is nowhere else to go. And to prevent becoming trapped, never go into a closed attic. Floodwaters can hide sharp objects, contain toxic chemicals, or cover down power lines. So it's important not to wait in the water even when it's calm. As the climate keeps warming, many areas will likely see more flooding due to stronger hurricanes and more extreme rain. So everyone should know how to keep themselves and their families safe before a flood arrives. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Donald Trump has long had a callous disregard for U.S. security alliances, starting with NATO. He recently said Russia can do what it wants with NATO members that don't pay their dues. That comment underscores Trump's continuing appeasement of Russia. Now we go to Global Citizen commentary on the issue from Portland State Professor Emeritus Mel Gertov. The opinions expressed in the following piece are those of the speaker. Hello, everyone. For many years, Donald Trump has been out to end U.S. participation in NATO, citing defense costs, but actually being keen to appease Vladimir Putin. As some of Trump's former national security advisors have said, Trump has no conception of NATO's importance for collective security, no sense that NATO represents forward defense of the U.S., no less than of Europe. To Trump, security alliances are like any other investment. You evaluate them on the basis of return on investment. You pull out when the market goes down. So here he is speaking at a campaign rally about NATO and Russia. Quote, one of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? You didn't pay, you're delinquent, Trump supposedly said. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want, they meaning Russia. You gotta pay. I doubt that that conversation actually happened, but no matter. He said it. If NATO members cannot pay their fair share of the bill, Russia can do whatever the hell they want to Europe. This astounding statement, once inconceivable from a Republican, was immediately denounced by Europeans, by President Biden and other top officials, by Senator Mitt Romney, and by Nikki Haley. In fact, by almost everyone except the pro-Trump MAGAites in the House and Senate. They did the usual, going along to get along. To be clear, Trump was not raising the issue of costs as a pressure tactic to get NATO members to pay more for mutual defense. Europeans not contributing their 2% of GDP is just a pretext. He's deadly serious about withdrawing and leaving Europe to fend for itself against Russia. Trump tried to pull out of NATO in his first term, and not just from NATO, but also from U.S. security alliances with Japan and South Korea. Fortunately, at that time, there were guardrails around Trump, experienced military and civilian officials who understood the calamity that would befall U.S. interests if Trump followed through. 
These officials also saw that Trump had neither the understanding nor the interest in alliance affairs. He simply followed his gut feelings and his pocketbook. Saudi Arabia looked like a better investment than Europe or Asia. An intriguing question is what the professional U.S. military leaders would do if Trump, once again president, were to order an end to U.S. participation in NATO. During his previous term, when Trump indicated he wanted the U.S. out, the Joint Chiefs of Staff acknowledged that Trump, as commander-in-chief, would be constitutionally permitted to make a withdrawal decision. If the same issue were to come up again, and those closest to him are certain it will if he is elected, would the military leaders go along, or would we face an unprecedented national security crisis brought about by their refusal to obey orders? To come back to the matter of costs, European members of NATO, the Japanese, and the Koreans surely ought to pay more for their defense. In fact, in recent years, they have been paying more, regarding such payments as a form of rent for reliance on U.S. forces and equipment. But those payments are not the real issue. The U.S. alliance system that has been under construction since the start of the Cold War is mainly a U.S. creation built to serve American interests. The U.S. is not simply doling out money. It is leading the effort to contain and deter Russia in Europe, China and North Korea in East Asia. To be sure, diplomacy ought to receive at least as much emphasis in U.S. security policy as the military side. But abandoning allies would expose vulnerabilities that the Russians and the Chinese would pounce on, greatly increasing the threat to U.S. security just as assuredly as did appeasement of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. The larger issue here is the limits of Donald Trump's foreign policy thinking, a subject I wrote a book about a few years ago. Some people call his views transactionalist, others isolationist. His thinking certainly incorporates both those elements, but in the main, it's simply narrow-mindedness and shallowness. Only two matters in foreign affairs get his attention, commerce and immigration. All else, strategy, intelligence, foreign aid, human rights, ideology, climate change, is of no interest to him. That's what makes it easy for him to abandon Europe to Russia. He doesn't see the larger costs and consequences. I'm Mel Gertoff for The Global Citizen. Thanks very much for listening. You're listening to the KBOO Evening News for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Mel Gertov. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Otto. Special thanks to Terry D., Edwin J. Vieira, Antonia Gonzalez, Mike Moen, and Dr. Anthony Lysowitz. The director of Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Eric Leuschner. All of our KBU programs, including the evening news, are supported by our members. If you would like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to the number 44321. Stay tuned now for KBU News In-Depth. KBU News In-Depth where we take a deeper look at the top news stories impacting our community. You are listening to KBOO News In-Depth. I'm Althea Billings. 
As Oregon legislators debate the effects of Measure 110 and whether to recriminalize drugs, we're taking a look at the other half of the landmark measure, the influx in funding for substance use disorder treatment and recovery services. It's meant to help build a continuum of care for people, and it represents a historic investment in a long-neglected field in Oregon. Shannon Jones Isidore is the CEO and founder of the Oregon Change Clinic, a recipient of those funds. Their treatment and temporary housing services are specifically aimed at serving BIPOC Portlanders. I spoke with Shannon to learn more. Well, welcome. Thank you for for being here. Can you tell me can you tell me a little bit about Oregon Change Clinic? Absolutely. We are an outpatient treatment facility. And um, we do treatment for those that are um, working through substance use disorder and uh, mental health issues, so mild to moderate uh, mental health challenges. Our target population, those that we work primarily with, are black indigenous people of color. The majority of our clients